You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I invite you through your imagination through the time-space continuum, and I want you to be a proverbial fly on the wall. In May 1775, you're in Philadelphia, you're on 6th Street, you're at what today is called Liberty Hall. If you could be that fly on the wall, you would see such illustrious characters as John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. You'd be witnessing the Second Continental Congress. This is the Congress that declared war on Britain. This is the Congress that signed the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock's large signature. This is the Congress that appointed George Washington the head of the Continental Army. Certainly one of the greatest events in our history as Americans. But if you could have just flown down just two blocks from 6th Street to 4th Street to St. George's Church, you would have found an even more important meeting, I think, in light of eternity. That's Francis Asbury meeting with Thomas Franken and other leaders of the Methodist movement to strategize a plan to evangelize the frontiers of this emerging country. During that time, this was, by the way, the same year, 1775, that Daniel Bruhn had opened up the pathway to the Cumberland Gap into what was the frontier from Tennessee to Kentucky and had proven that you could actually get a large covered wagon through the mountains, which had seemed so impassable. This opened up enormous opportunities for those of us who lived in this place. And by 1779, there were settlers right here in this part of Kentucky, uh, though the town of Wilmore would not be heard of or thought of for 100 years later. When they built High Bridge down here, they established Scott Station. And it was 1876 that they defined, they, they, they called it Wilmore. But long before that, Francis Asbury was determined to start a place of training for ministers to be trained to bring the gospel to this part of the country. And so he came to this area and he scouted out a place, which the reason we're here today is what happened in 1790 when they established uh, Bethel Academy just about a couple of miles, a few miles from here as a crow flies by Handy Bench Road. I have here before you one of the original bricks from Bethel Academy where he had founded a place of training right here. And this, of course, became a crucial, crucial point of why uh, we have training here in this place now so many years later. Later on, when uh, uh, as as this movement came, Asbury came down multiple times from 1790 onward because of this school being here. And one of his trips down, he crossed the Ohio River the other way to get to Kentucky. And amazingly, you remember this is the time when the U.S. had purchased the Louisiana Purchase. And there was an exploration of Lewis and Clark all the way out to the western part of this country. And so when Francis Asbury was crossing the Ohio River, he actually met the flotilla of Lewis and Clark as they were traveling westward to explore this country. These two amazing events crossed on that day. But again, the greatest event in history will be ultimately the gospel spreading to this part of the country and through this around the world. You fast forward Many, many years later, in 1885, H.C. Uh, Morrison, who had later years later become your, if you're the university's sixth president, our founder, he made his first trip to Wilmore at 28 years old in 1885. Wilmore was only, had only been Wilmore for nine years 
The High Bridge Railroad only opened for eight years. And he had a revival here in this city in 1885. And the, even though it was I mean, small today, it was even really small then. But 104 people came to Christ in Wilmore, Kentucky. And so later when H.C. Uh, Martin became friends with John Wesley Hughes, who also had left the ministry, uh, the ordained ministry to become an evangelist, he encouraged him to consider Wilmore, Kentucky as a place to fulfill his dream to start a holiness college in Kentucky. And of course, you may know the story. He came to this town and uh, Hughes said, if I can raise $1,600 in one week from the Wilmore residents, I'll take that as a sign from God to start it here. Praise God for the Wilmore residents. In one week, he raised $1,600 and he said to start it right here. And of course, he built it in those days. It was built between what's now the Methodist Church and the post office is where Asbury College began in 1890. In fact, uh, it's important to note that the Asbury College was built on the centennial of the founding of Bethel Academy. They first named you, if you're a university student, they named you uh, the Kentucky Holiness College in 1890. In 1891, they changed the name to Asbury College in honor of Francis Asbury's work in this part of the country. In 1901, when they built administration building over here, they literally built that building on a foundation stone hauled up from Bethel Academy right there on Handy Bend's Road, showing the continuity. In 1905, when John Wesley Hughes retired after 15 really glorious years of service to founding this college, and by the way, uh, uh, you were still over there at that time, but in the, I think around 1908, they acquired... Bellevue College. It was a Presbyterian school right here, right over there. And they acquired 10 acres of land right here. And that, of course, became the location of the new school after 1908, uh, the college burned down. But from 1905 to 1910, the college went through an extremely difficult period. You had uh, four presidents in five years. Your student body went from 400 down to 50. And the trustees of Asbury uh, College decided to close the college. And someone said, but wait a minute, what if a miracle would happen? What if we get the great evangelistic preacher, H.C. Morrison, camp meeting preacher, to be the president of Asbury College? Couldn't that possibly turn us around? And they voted to save the college unless Morrison agreed to be the president. In the late hours of the night, 2 a.m., H.C. Morrison took the call in 1910 to be the president of Asbury College. What a tremendous turning point that was in both of our histories. Because by 1923, he established Asbury Seminary. And I want to just say publicly here today that we, the seminary, are the fruit of your vision. We are the fruit of your faithfulness. We want you to know, Asbury University students, we count you as our mother. Thank you, Mom. You gave birth to us. We honor you today because you gave birth to us and we want to be faithful to that heritage. A hundred years later, we still believe in the fully sanctified life. A hundred years later, we still believe in Trinitarian salvation. A hundred years later, we still believe that God's work done in God's way will not lack God's supply. A hundred years later, we still believe in the power of salvation, the transforming power of the gospel. A hundred years later, we still believe in the centrality of Jesus Christ. We still believe a hundred years later in engaging culture. And though your statement says it uh, even clearly, it's really ours too. We believe in academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We've been forged in faith, tried through fire, 
and tested in adversity. And we thank God for the momentous nature of this event today. In closing, I want to say, you cannot imagine the shock that went across the Western world when H.C. Morrison died in 1942. When he died, there was a ripple effect across our world. What will we do without H.C. Morrison, this amazing visionary leader? Well, right now, as I speak this morning, I'm looking out and looking at Robert Coleman here in a wheelchair in front of me, who was the age of our freshman students at AU when H.C. Morrison died. John Stott was only 26 years old. Billy Graham was 24 years old. Martin Luther King Jr. was 14 years old. Nobody knew any of these people. Chuck Colson was 11 years old. Mark Knoll was 4 years old. N.T. Wright was 6 years old. My point being this, of all the challenges we face, and what we face the last 100 years, but what we'll face in the next 100, the future of this ministry is sitting right here in these chairs and on these lawns. You are the future of this faith. You are the future of this hope. And it's because of you that we exist and all the ministries that we can't even imagine now that are before us. Thanks be to God. Great is his faithfulness. Amen. Occasion, I was given a helpful prompt to comment on how might the Lord work through our institutions and our graduates 100 years from now? And to attempt to answer this question, I think we have to have some sense of what the world might be like in 100 years. Here's my short answer. I have no idea. Having said that, the question reminds me of another 100-year prediction that was made. In 1928, John Maynard Keynes wrote an essay, which was later republished in 1931. The essay was called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And in his 100-year forecast, he provided two predictions. His first prediction related to growth. Due to the ever-increasing innovative capacities and technological advancement, the output per person would explode over the next 100 years. And he estimated a standard of living increase between four and eight times. Because of a full flood of technical innovations, he mentioned electricity, petroleum, steel, rubber, cotton, the chemical industries, automatic machinery, and the methods of mass production, this future growth, he said, was inevitable. His second prediction related to work. Since we would have more output, we'd have more abundance, wealth, materials, resources, etc. at our disposal. And if we had more abundance, we would work less. Thus, by 2028, he predicted we would only work three hours a day or 15 hours per week. Keynes' first prediction about growth and innovation was remarkably prescient. Since his announcement, U.S. GDP per capita has grown by a factor of six. Economists have praised the relative accuracy of his forecast. His second prediction about a decreased work hours due to increased abundance was remarkably inaccurate. Today, the average American does not work 15 hours a week. We still hover right around 40. 
Now, to the first prediction, Keynes seemed to understand the compounding potential of technology and its generative nature and its relationship to growth and output. Even writing during a worldwide depression, he was able to see past the current economic downturn what he described as a temporary phase of maladjustment and see a future characterized by forces of inexorable growth. But to the second prediction, he assumed increasing human satisfaction with increased abundance. In economic parlance, he thought wealth and resources had diminishing marginal utility. The more we got, the less valuable it would be to us. He thought abundance was enough to satisfy us. One scholar says, I think that Keynes underestimated human satiability. In our brief time here, I just want to suggest that the predictions made by Keynes 100 years ago and their fulfillment, or lack thereof, give us some insight as to how we might think about our future and, more importantly, the role of our institutions and the graduates that these institutions produce in the future. First, we can continue to expect ever-increasing, ever-powerful, ever-competent, and ever-encroaching technological growth. This means we are preparing to inhabit or to minister to a marketplace populated by jobs that do not yet exist. A recent report by Dell Technologies and the Institute for the Future suggested that 85% of jobs that will exist in 2030 don't exist today. Similar to Keynes' prediction, will likely grow in abundance. We can expect each generation to have more. And we can be sure that new technologies will continue to force evaluative questions. Questions about what it means to be a self. Questions about what it means to be a good person. What it means to lead a good life. What it means to realize a just society. And we know basic fundamental human needs will still exist. We know that we will still have places where service will be valuable. We know that sinful capacity will always taint and hover over persons, institutions, and societies. Whatever else we might say about the future, we can be confident in those things. So what does that mean for us as followers of Christ? And what does that mean for our institutions? What does it mean for our graduates? And from an educational standpoint, We respond to these questions by asking what endures in the future and what's robust to withstand the dynamism of tomorrow's innovations, technology, and growth, its speed. And I would suggest the following. First, sound thinking and a well-furnished mind. Evaluating the merits of an idea through the currency of reasoned argumentation, evidence, and prudential judgment. Not just how we think, but what we think. The things that are true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Cultivating the discipline to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. This relates to the posture of humility, which is an intellectual virtue. I think this means the ability to avoid being swayed by wayward ideas that suit our itching ears or palatable beliefs that are uncritically consumed to the detriment of the consumer. It's an equal competence to avoid dogmatism, that regrettable inclination that blunts our ability to listen, stunts our maturation, and limits the possibility of humanizing discourse or genuine truth-seeking. In the future, we can predict an increasing importance of developing our vocabulary. But developing our vocabulary, writes the author Marilyn McIntyre, 
is not using bigger and fancier words. It's learning to be specific, she says. The Christian tradition compels us to will the good of another and to provide compassionate service and support to social, economic, and politically vulnerable communities, to habituate ourselves into capacities to do what is right, to seek, promote, and create those things that are good, right, and true, that which demands our ordinate affections, to revere God and to ascribe value through love and affection, and to see obedience as a moral obligation and not as a product of coercion or fear. This is who we are. We're a peculiar people, holy and set apart. And we have words, we have a rich well to draw from, to characterize this way of life, to characterize these actions and aspects that constitute the way of God's people. Our future will demand lexical specificity, but we do not enter it without centuries of resource, without what the late scholar Tom Oden described as the deeper consensus that has been gratefully celebrated and received teaching by believers of vastly different cultural settings. What else is robust to a dynamic future? I think it's moral excellence. It's a desire for the good. It's virtue. It's Christ-like discipleship. In 2009, during the worst global financial crisis of our era, the authors from The Economist wrote an article that explored the notion of progress and its contemporary definition. An historical survey of past periods of economic, scientific, and technological prosperity have no parallel when compared to our present context. And like Keynes, it is right to expect similar prosperity in the future. However, in their article, which was titled, Onwards and upwards, this was not the conclusion they reached. Indeed, our material progress has failed to deliver emotional satisfaction, deeper relational commitments, and overall happiness. Life is a dismal slog in an ugly world, they write. So they raise the question, perhaps we need better definitions of progress and prosperity, characterizations that account for apprehending and embodying timeless moral ideals. And I am increasingly convinced that in a future marked by interconnected technology, a shifting workforce, human-like language models, and other adaptive forms of emotional, or I'm sorry, (laughs) emotional, artificial intelligence, the other intelligence, virtue and moral capacity will only grow and increase in its importance. Wendell Berry has reminded us that a good artist is also a good forger. The ethicist Martha Nussbaum says a good doctor is also a good poisoner. We could go on. A thoughtful accountant is also an able thief. A charismatic leader can multiply welfare or coerce harm. A talented actor or actress is well equipped to deceive. And hear this, it's not the skill, but rather it's application. It's moral application that separates the artist from the forger and the doctor from the poisoner and the accountant from the thief and the leader from the oppressor and the performer from the deceiver. And that's our task. That's what we do. And the day that these institutions do not model and teach intellectual rigor and lexical specificity curated through tradition and Christian orthodoxy and cultivate the ordered love and the moral capacities of our students all in an intentional, incarnational environment, the day we don't do that, we are obsolete. I want to end with one more prediction about the future. Years ago, our former president, Dr. Sandra Gray, was visiting Czechoslovakia, now known as the Czech Republic. Prior to 1989, Czechoslovakia had experienced decades 
of communist rule. And her guide showed her to a church that had been underground. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the church was allowed to legally and freely open. But the name of the church was only allowed a maximum of three words. What do you think they named the church? The guide asked Dr. Gray. She thought of some conventional names. He is risen. Jesus is Lord, or perhaps something more descriptive, Church of Czechoslovakia. No, said the guide. They named it the Lamb Wins. The Lamb Wins. What will the future be like? I can't predict 100 years from now. I can't predict 2030. I mean, I, I can't really predict next week, if I'm honest with you. But the Lamb Wins. And I don't mean victory the way that we tend to think of it. The Lamb Wins through sacrifice possessing the mind of Christ through service, through humility, through steadfastness, and through love. Ronald Osborne at the Veritas Forum said, the question, can we be good without God, does not strike nearly deep enough. The urgent question, he said, is this, will we still be good to the stranger in our midst, or good in the same ways once we have fully grasped the contestable character of humanism, And once we have utterly abandoned the essentially religious idea that every person is made in the enigmatic language of Scripture in the image of God. The methods and the modalities employed to fulfill our respective institutional missions will change. They've changed for decades and they will change with a changing future. But our mission, the mission of Asbury University, the mission of Asbury Theological Seminary does not change. And our relevance to the future will be intimately tied to the proximity of this mission. Why? Because the Lamb wins. That is our collective trust, and it's our hope for the future. Amen.